when we plan, we tend to think of these horrific things that we're frightened of and think that they're going to happen. And, and in fact, if we look at the actual likelihoods, the, the situation is quite different. Um, so if, as a man, you are 105 times more likely to date a supermodel than be involved in a terrorist event. So uh, rather than worrying about the terrorist event, I'd be looking for the supermodel. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Data Barracks Business Continuity Podcast. Last time, we looked at what makes someone good in a disaster and why certain people are drawn to situations where everything goes wrong. For this episode, I thought it might be interesting to turn the tables and look at why some people and organisations find business continuity and disaster recovery so complex or unappealing. The reality is that continuity has a bit of a PR problem. People who aren't already bought in often think it's boring or expensive or difficult, and I want to find out why that is. Of course, there are a lot of reasons, but some are far more simple than you might think. First of all, the language commonly used to describe continuity and recovery doesn't always endear itself to sceptical audiences. That was Vicky Gavin at the start of the episode, talking about putting different risks into perspective, and we'll return to the idea of expectation versus reality a little later on. But for now, it is worth thinking about the wording of marketing messaging around BC and DR that's often hyperbolic. And for people like Michael Faber, even the word disaster itself has unavoidable negative connotations that can influence how organisations approach the topic altogether. He defines disaster a little differently. Disaster recovery is a very negative thing term in itself. Disaster is very negative. And what we should be looking to ensure, and it's, it's, it's actually the pause that's important here, is we look to ensure we never have a disaster to the business. So if we can ensure that we keep the business running, if we can ensure that our clients or customers don't walk away because of the way we handled it, we actually haven't had a disaster to the business. You know, my, my late father said, prevention is the best cure. So for Michael then, continuity is all dependent on how the business experiences disaster. The world could be coming to an end outside, but if continuity is maintained and the business operates normally throughout, it might as well not have happened. Now, whilst we're on the subject of clarity, Vicky Gavin of The Economist was also able to contribute some more easily understandable definitions. I always refer to DR in terms of resource recovery. And when I say resource, I mean your systems, um, your suppliers, the other critical resources like communications channels that your business depend on. So it's the the technology or the infrastructure, if you will. It, it's the the things you can put your hands on and touch. How, how do you recover those? Because one of those falling over is a disaster and you're recovering from it. Business continuity is about how the rest of the world or your world is using all of those critical resources and what they need to do to make sure that your business remains a going concern. Because at the end of the day, no matter how many IT systems you have available, it's not going to run your business. Yet you actually have to have people who are making decisions, who are doing things that are going to make your business recover. And so the the two have to come together. They are absolutely complementary. But I see business continuity as the people side and disaster recovery as the equipment side. Now, language is equally important to John Robinson of Inoni, although for different reasons. Uh, Miscommunication can be rife during continuity planning, 
and John takes care to word his planning exercises very carefully so as to present participants with clear, unambiguous choices. If, if, you, if you ask a vague question of three people, they'll interpret it in three ways. And if you're looking for time frames and trying to find out how quickly to do something, they'll give you three incompatible answers against which you then proceed to make decisions, which might mean you either expose yourself to more risk than you need to, or you spend more money protecting yourself than you need to. And neither of them is particularly good. So you learn that stuff. And I think that's, that's what takes someone who's never done it to a position of experience where you can actually go in and, and do it really fast and really well. And that's what you're trying to get to. I had this only the other day, sitting in a room with a group of people from a finance department, and there was a question in the, in the, in the, the set that we'd given them that they found a degree of freedom in. And they said, well, how do I answer this? And I said, that's my fault. I should have pinned that aspect down more tightly, and we changed it there and then. And now that then affects the rest of the, the, their business. But it means that I now have to go and just perhaps just check and make sure everyone who has already answered the question answered it in exactly the same sense. But that, that I think that's the nub of the whole thing is how you, the information coming in, garbage in, garbage out, right? Vagueness in, vagueness out. And that, that sums it up. Michael and John are essentially talking about overcoming semantic problems here, but no amount of clarity can address the far more common objections of resource constraints. Whether it's time, money or expertise, Good continuity is often regarded as a demanding, laborious exercise that might be peripheral to core activities. The thing is, once you unpick these reservations a little, the problem seems less about actual resources as it is about priorities. Matt Hogan of the London Fire Brigade has spoken to organisations large and small about this, and regardless of how much time or money is available, without an internal continuity champion driving some kind of adoption, it's simply easier to just ignore things and devote attention to other projects. Risk assessment is never the most exciting thing. If you've got a, a really complicated industry, if you work in a big financial institution or something like that, um, then I think having somebody that really gets disaster recovery business continuity is really important uh, because they've got so many different competing agendas within their business that you need a sort of champion to, to highlight the, the risk there. Um, in the smaller businesses, you know, if you're looking at sort of micro businesses, sole traders, that sort of thing, actually, you know, they can't have a single person just doing disaster recovery. They need to be more broad. Michael Faber also spoke of the need to have some internal driving force that brings continuity into the spotlight and makes it a priority for key decision makers. We spoke about why time is often the most difficult organisational resource to acquire and how to go about securing it. The main reason why it wouldn't be successful or, or, or would be pushed onto the back burner is because everybody, and, and certainly in many of the organisations I've worked in, have day-to-day um, -day priorities. You know, there's somebody, so, so in IT it would be somebody either banging on the desk saying this doesn't work mm. or I need this yesterday. So which priority are you going to put first? The managing director standing at your desk saying I need this now or something that may never happen. And that's something that is a constant issue for people like me. Mm. You know, it, you know what, the, the thing to do is never give up. Um, so you may, have to, you may have to bide your time. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the key thing is to get the confidence of the business, first of all, to know that as far as you're concerned, the most important thing to them is their time. 
actually money can be sometimes easier to get mm-hmm. um, from, from a business than it is their time. If you get to a situation, whether, whether it's the board, whether it's senior management, any member of staff, that actually Michael knows how important my time is. If he's asking for something from me, it must be important, and therefore I'll give him what he needs. And if you can get that level of confidence in people, you will get their time, and you can't do anything without their time. Sure. You can do certain things without money, but you can't do things without the business time. However, overcoming objections isn't always about winning people over. Vicky Gavin began her career in continuity in the wake of one of the largest disasters in living memory. Her job wasn't to win people around to the concept of disaster recovery, but to emphasise its practical utility, to reassure people still reeling in shock that planning was worthwhile, that it could still be an effective remedy to something as chaotic as 9-11. It was really about stabilising the team. As you can imagine, post 9-11, New York and our offices were located at the other end of Wall Street, five blocks walk from the towers. People were antsy, best way to describe it. No, Nobody was comfortable. I have never felt safer anywhere in my life than I did in post 9-11 New York because it was just literally blanketed with law enforcement. And, and that's because, I mean, the entire city was on high alert at that point. So my role was really about confidence and making sure people understood we had plans in place Um, We as an organization got really lucky because we had actually been doing a recovery test when the plane hit the building and so invoked immediately. We actually had a very successful recovery, but it was was more by luck than by design. And, And it was about trying to design in some of that luck for next time, looking at, well, what things had gone well and why, um, and then building on those. In truth, the need to build confidence and demonstrate legitimacy wasn't entirely down to the magnitude of 9-11. It owes just as much to the historically disorganized approach that many IT teams had taken to recovery up to that point. IT departments the world over for a lot of years have done seat of the pants. Bad stuff happens and everybody scrambles. And generally, there's a lot of goodwill and everybody in IT pulls together and and gets it happening. In a post 9-11 world, there was all of a sudden a desire from more senior levels to to have assurances that they would be able to do that. Not not just a, yeah, you guys are gonna work hard and do the best you can, but but something that says, we've thought about it and and this is this is what the problem looks like and this is how we're going to solve it. So it wasn't a, a not having business continuity plans. And I think that was the big learning is that business continuity and disaster recovery are two separate and complementary activities. And you can't do one and not the other. Now, Mel Gosling is a fellow of the Business Continuity Institute and owner of Mericon Business Continuity Solutions. Mel also emphasised this need for disaster recovery owners to show they're working and provide evidence in order to be perceived as legitimate by the business. Yeah, well, one of the things that has changed for, not for the good, in IT disaster recovery is the fact that um, people like myself who ran complex IT setups at the time uh, always made sure that we had actually really tried out recovery from beginning to end. Okay, So we knew hand on heart we could recover what we'd lost. Uh, One of the features I see today in many IT setups uh, is that um, this isn't done. 
people say, yeah, we think we can recover it. We have recovered certain files, certain systems, but could we recover the whole thing? We've never really tried it. So uh, I think that's something that's happened um, for the worse, if you like. This reluctance to test isn't surprising. As IT setups have become more complex, finding the time and motivation to test without any urgent need is difficult. Because that's the other thing about disastrous events like 9-11. If nothing else, they provide an impetus to shore up recovery plans. And for Mel, the last big incentive like this was actually for the Millennium Bug. I mean, the, actually, the last um, piece of work I did for this insurance company, um, when I was working basically as a, a consultant for them, as I was hoping to retire, um, was I ran their Year 2000 project. Um, and to me, that's business continuity in action that worked. Um, we made a lot of changes to the systems that would have crippled the company had we not made them. And, uh, yeah, so on midnight, everything went swimmingly, and it was uh, worked well, so it was great. Uh, there are a couple of problems that uh, that I came across, and funnily enough, one of them was my mother-in-law's hearing aid, which, believe it or not, failed on a dot of midnight. <laughs> It's mostly a punchline today, but it's easy to forget how legitimate the Y2K threat felt at the time, and the sense of fear that the media and less-than-scrupulous marketing departments capitalised on in order to drive business. Fear is still a major component of BC and DR marketing, and for people like Mel, it's a significant contributor to the wider PR problem. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of panic, as there always is in these things. Um, People made a lot of money out of frightening people. I, I don't like fear-based selling. I hate it. Um, and in fact, uh, if you do some research on who I was, you'll probably find the only thing I'm really famous for is debunking what I call the 80% myth. You must have heard the uh, spurious statistic, 80% of businesses that don't have a business continuity plan or IT disaster plan fail within 18 months of uh, an incident. That's absolute load of rubbish. Um, I've spent a lot of time re- you know, just researching that. It's like me saying that uh, every business that implements business continuity will double its profits. Both are lies, you know. (laughs) So I asked Mel, if fear-based selling doesn't work, what does? What resonates most with people? The answer was quite simple. People don't like being told they should be afraid, even or perhaps especially if they already are. Mel's approach was to dictate less and listen more. Well, I position it more... um... I suppose, in terms of talking to executives about what keeps them awake at night. And uh, I, it's you know something that um, I find most executives want to be have sort of hand on heart and know they could cope if there was an incident and would know what to do. Um, so I tend to find that uh, certainly amongst people that really do care about their businesses or organisations, yeah, it's something that they're willing to uh, to look into and invest in. Now, listening becomes doubly important when the main motivator isn't fear, but obligation. It depends on the type of organisation. Uh, and it's really the motivation of the people at the top. Do they want to do it for the right reasons or not? Well, first of all, do they want to do it? If they don't, you might as well not even bother. Um, but if they do want to do it, what's their motivation? Are they really wanting to have a plan in place that will enable them to, to cope when an incident happens? Or are they just ticking a box? And uh, those... Two things take you down two entirely different roads. Matt Hogan also regards listening as important to experts and end users alike. It's through listening that he was able to help produce the London Risk Register, an annually updated document that comprehensively catalogues the different risks that businesses in London and beyond may be exposed to. 
It's a fantastic resource for any organization looking to more clearly understand their risk profile. And I'd encourage you to go and download it as soon as you can. It's free and it's just an invaluable starting point to becoming more resilient. What we do is take uh, a broad group of experts, people that work in London, work with the organizations that we work with, the emergency services, local government, health services, etc., and say to them, you know, what could happen here? What, what are the risks that London faces? And we've gone through a process of doing that over, we must be into our 10th year of, of the risk register now. And um, I think there's 67 different risks in there, different scenarios that could affect London, ranging from flooding, uh, transport accidents. There the was at one time, we've recently removed it, a caterpillar in there. Uh, because there's, there's a particular caterpillar, the oak processionary moth, that can exacerbate respiratory conditions and things, and that that was potentially a, a hazard at a time. Um, so the, there's a whole range of different things in there. It's not just the things that you see in the news, the terrorist things, the cyber. Um, it, it's lots of different scenarios. And we work then with experts in those industries to say, you know, what's the risk of that happening? How often has it happened in the past? When it happened in the past, what were the impacts of it? Uh, and we score the risks then based on their likelihood and their impact. And then that, that helps us prioritize what we do. So we obviously we can't have 67 different plans for things. So we take uh, what are the common consequences of the risk? So uh, the need to evacuate people from their homes, the need to uh, decontaminate people if they've been exposed to a substance, uh, lots, lots of different sort of common consequences that appear in lots of different risks uh, and, and develop plans for those. So we've got a London evacuation framework, uh, a way to provide people with shelter if they've been made homeless because of an emergency, uh, a specific flood response plan because that's particularly high risk in London, um, and work on that basis rather than lots of different plans that, you know, which one do you pick off the shelf at which time? Risk can be a positive thing as well. There, there are opportunities within risk, uh, and all businesses are, um, whether they know it or not, they're, they're dealing in risk every day. Uh, so it, it is just an extension of what they do in, in normal operation, really. I thought that last point was particularly interesting. Anyone can benefit from continuity and recovery planning. The hyperbole of terrorist attacks and environmental disasters risks alienating huge numbers of organisations that would simply benefit from just writing down what they do if a quarter of the office got flu, or if someone accidentally digs through their fibre connection outside. At the same time, BC and DR plans have to do more than position themselves as better to have and not need than need and not have. In truth, planning, implementation and maintenance can be too disruptive or costly or difficult for that kind of messaging to win people over. The benefits need to be clearer, and the work needs to be easier. That's why projects like the London Risk Register are so important. They demystify risk in a very real sense, and make the information and tools needed to plan effectively available to organisations of all sizes and readiness levels. More than anything, it's tools like that that help keep conversations grounded, practical, and relevant, which I think is the point here. If you want to overcome objections or simply disinterest in BC and DR, then don't talk about disaster in any abstract sense. Make it local, keep it small, and specific to your immediate circumstances. So, thanks for listening. And now for our final section, our final one piece of advice, one thing that organisations can do in the next 24 hours to improve their resiliency, it's Matt Hogan, talking about the London Risk Register, which you can find really easily. Just Google London Risk Register, and we'll put the URL in the show notes. 
So thanks again for listening and join us again in a few weeks when we'll be looking at a relatively new area of continuity, cyber. Thank you. Go and have a look at the risk register. Uh, It's available publicly. It's updated annually, so you know that you're going to get something that is up to date uh, because the risk picture changes. Think about uh, whether those risks could affect you. Uh, And that might be a little bit difficult. You know, do you guys know if you've got a high pressure gas pipeline running near you and where can you go to find that information out? Sometimes trying to identify which of those risks apply to you can be a bit difficult. But if it's something that you're interested in, then as I say, local authorities have got that duty to support business continuity. So you can get in touch with them and say, you know, what are the local risks? What should I be preparing for? 